Listening In With Permission by Catalyst for Payment Reform is a collection of 15 to 20-minute phone conversations on innovative healthcare purchasing between CPR staff and healthcare luminaries. CPR's mission is to catalyze employers, public purchasers, and others to implement strategies that produce higher-value healthcare and improve the functioning of the healthcare marketplace. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to Listening In on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at Catalyze.org for more information about the benefits of CPR membership. Hello, Rob Andrews. Hey, Rob. This is Guy D'Andrea calling from Catalyst for Payment Reform. I'm eager to talk with you today about the Health Transformation Alliance and the work you're doing in primary care. But before we get started, I wanted to let you know that we have a podcast audience listening into our discussion, and it would be great if you could introduce yourself and share a little bit about your background. Sure, Guy, I'm happy to do that. I was fortunate to be the founding CEO of the HTA nine years ago. The HTA is a cooperative about 60 plus major companies. We are JP Morgan, Coca-Cola, Marriott, Intel, Boeing. And we're in the business of trying to use our checking accounts basically to improve healthcare. Before that, I had a chance the honor of serving in the US House of Representatives for about 25 years and was very much involved in writing and implementing the Affordable Care Act. So Healthcare has been an important part of my work life and my journey, and I know it's been for you too. It has, it has. And it's a journey that I think that continues for all of us. Uh, we have a lot of work uh, remaining in order to really achieve the goal of a, of a high-performing health system. Uh, you mentioned your, your time in Congress and your role in, in supporting and, and, and informing the passage of the Affordable Care Act. I'm sure our, our listeners would love to hear any war stories or experiences that you have from that time that you might be able to share. So one of the experiences has happened a lot, guys, since the, the Affordable Care Act became law, when there would be so many people that were constituents or just people that I knew who would say, you know, my daughter's 25 years old and she is getting started in her career. It was great. I could keep her in my health plan. Or you'd run into a family that has been tragically hit by a cancer problem or some other major problem. And instead of having to have golf tournaments and raffles to try to pay their bills, you know, there's now no lifetime or annual policy limit on what insurance covers, what healthcare covers. And it's hard to find anybody who hasn't had a pre-existing condition in their life, skin cancer or diabetes or whatever. And the ability of many people to get affordable coverage that they couldn't have gotten before is something I'll remember. But I, in terms of a war story, I guess the most humbling thing I heard is that on the morning after the final bill was passed, uh, President Obama called me. He called a, a number of people, but he called me, which is very humbling for someone who grew up where I did, working class background and I didn't even think I'd ever get to see a president of the United States, much less than talk to one on the phone. And he told me that he felt that what we had done the night before was even more satisfying and important than his election uh, in 2008. And given the historic consequences of that election, it really meant something to me to hear that from him. Yeah, I can imagine that must have been a very special moment. And certainly, I think he was right, and I and you were right in terms of the impact that the Affordable Care Act had 
on the health system. But as we know, it, it was really more of a starting point for, for work that continues uh, to be done uh, in various levels and, stake, and among various stakeholders, purchasers, policymakers, providers, patients all have an important role to play. Um, can you say a little bit more? You may, you talked a little bit about the, uh, the Health Transformation Alliance and who some of your members are. Can you talk a little a little more about the organization and and your role in a post Affordable Care Act marketplace in trying to in driving change uh, towards a better healthcare system? I've been honored by the member companies to give me the opportunity and our team the opportunity to carry on the work and advance the work that. Uh, I was involved in with the Affordable Care Act. You said it exactly right, Guy, that it was a step forward, but by no means a completion of what needs to be done. And what we spend a lot of our time doing is matching. And what I mean by that is that there are terrific healthcare providers in, in essentially every community in the United States. And there's people with needs who need to see those providers, but there's so many barriers economically and legally that have been put up to matching the best providers with the patients most in need. In essence, that's what we're trying to do in the HTA. We're trying to take our data and learn who the high value providers are, educate consumers about who those high value providers are and try to match them as often as we possibly can. And I know that the coalition is all about that. You know, the coalition is about trying to define what value means and help uh, HR professionals and benefit leads figure out how to do that matching that we're trying to do. Well, and I think that that description of the mission and, and the work that you do uh, to match uh, the needs and the solutions in the healthcare system is a great segue to talk about the work that you're doing in advanced primary care. Can, before we get into the specifics of HTA's program, can you speak a little bit about the general importance of primary care to improving population health and health system value? What are some of the challenges that patients are facing when they're trying to access effective primary care? The person outside of our loved ones, the person who is most able to connect us in the way that we talked about this matching process is a great primary care doctor. And what great primary care doctors do is they solve more problems at the primary care level without referrals. When they make referrals, they make the referrals based upon data. Who are the high value providers? Not, you know, who do I have to refer to because of some economic incentive or requirement? And they also earn the trust of a patient. The patient's much more likely to listen to them if they say, hey, not so much red meat. Maybe you should walk a little bit more and lose some weight. That a great PCP is someone that we'll listen to. The system has made it really tough for primary care doctors to do that. They're, you know, they have to see 12, 15 patients an hour. They get scarce time with them, not a whole lot of data. And we're trying to create a system where pr great primary care doctors can thrive, will be well compensated and rewarded for their work, and that more and more patients have that kind of trusted relationship. And so in that context, can you talk a little bit about the work that HTA specifically is doing to, to achieve that goal? Yeah, well, I can, Guy. And one thing I want to be clear about is that we're generalizing here. 
Great primary care doctors can work for a health system. Many of them do. They can work for a, a large health provider like Optum. Many of them do. But we're trying to, to foster a situation where the primary care doctors are rewarded and incented for great outcomes for the patient. And so what we've been able to do here is knit together a series of primary, direct primary care providers into a national network. At present count, we have about five or 600 bricks and mortar clinics in the, in the network. We cover about a third of the population of the United States lives within five miles of such a provider. They also offer virtual care as well, obviously. But what we've been able to do is knit together this network and fashion it in a way that a benefit lead who wants uh, her or his consumers to have that option can offer the option, but not have to have a separate contractual arrangement with each primary care practice. What we've been able to do is create a master agreement and create a situation where the carrier will pay the claims for that provider. I know that sounds very much in the weeds, but I know the people who are part of your coalition really well. And if you said to them, you've got to have a separate contract for 12 different primary care entities, they're just not going to do it. They're not going to do it. So our system is really built on the idea that you take a, a well-incented and empowered physician. You make it easier for the patient to get to her or him. And you make it easier for the HR lead, the benefit lead, to access that network without having to do multiple contracts and have multiple procurements. At Catalyst for Payment Reform, we push for equitable, high-value primary care. That's why in our newsletter, CPR Weekly, we promote the latest research and resources to support your primary care strategy. From information on virtual primary care programs to innovative benefit design, you will always be in the know as a CPR Weekly subscriber. Visit us at Catalyze.org to sign up today. Yeah, and just to, to emphasize a point you made, Rob, certainly the members of the Catalyst for Payment Reform, and I think most forward-thinking organizations looking at the healthcare system understand the central role of primary care, just as, as you've described, how foundational that relationship between a patient and that primary care provider is really into promoting better health and better management, but also unlocking the access that that patient needs to the right services to, yeah. to maximize their, their health status. Guy, another really key importance of this too is convenience. And convenience is actually too weak of a word. I use a better one, which is access. You know, I, medical practices now that are open from nine to four, Monday to Friday, in other words, build your life around when you can see the physician. It just doesn't work for so many people. You got so many people are working multiple jobs. They have obligations to their children. Maybe they're sandwich generation people have obligations to their parents and their children at the same time. You know, life happens. Cars break down. Overtime is necessary. Soccer games for one child get in the way of a doctor's appointment for the other. And we're trying to build a system here that is at the demand of the patient, of the consumer. So if you want virtual, you got it. If you want bricks and mortar, you got it. We were trying to minimize waiting times for the bricks and mortar appointments to a day or so at most instead of weeks, which in some cases is. Now this requires behavior change 
and it does require compensating primary care doctors better. If I could do one, if I had one wish for American healthcare, I think it would be that we figure out a way to dramatically increase the salaries of primary care physicians, increase their compensation, and reduce their student debt. If you did that, I think you would get more really able people going into that profession, and you get better care outcomes for consumers. And it really would address a core challenge in healthcare, which is the supply of you know, capable primary care resources, right? And that's a long-term yeah. issue that a lot of policymakers are grappling with. And at the end of the day, the way we try to approach it is our contracts with our vendors are capitated. So they get a flat fee per year per consumer. And obviously the incentive they then have is to achieve great health for the consumer so they're not to see them as often. Now, as a scope of services, they have to perform. There's no escape hatch from that. But if you do a great job with the the person who's pre-diabetic and he doesn't become diabetic, he doesn't have to see the physician as often. He doesn't consume as many resources and it's, it creates margin for the practice, which is we think the way to create income for the practitioner. So to summarize, I think what you've shared in, in terms of the HTA's program, you've built and are continuing to expand a network of primary care providers who meet key goals in terms of access to care, supporting patient, the patient care journey, and who have the right incentives to promote better patient health. Exactly. Can you share any early outcomes or success stories from your program? Yeah, it's really in its, its very, very early days. The first employer has signed up. They've had thus far about an 8% uptake rate, meaning 8% of the people who could sign up for the program did so in the first 45 days. We're pleasantly surprised by that. We thought it would be more in the, the lower single digits. And the anecdotal information thus far has been very positive. And I got an appointment that same afternoon. I was able to do virtual because it was more convenient for me. The doctor knew my records. She knew what was going on with me. Now, again, this is very, very early. I'm sure we will make mistakes. I know we have a lot to learn. But I think the early, early returns have shown us the combination of convenience plus trust equals better care. And we're, we're very excited about this. Right. And I, I'm sure our members at, at CPR and many different stakeholders across the system will be interested to see the results of your program as, as, they, as they roll in and to hear about the impact that you're having. I'd love to come back and, and talk more about that when we have more results. As I say, we've had our first tranche of potential enrollees, I believe, beginning of July. So that's how early this program is. But we believe that this time next year, we'll probably have at least a quarter of a million lives eligible for this, which we hope would mean 25,000 actual participants. And again, the way this works is that if you live in, you know, pick a place in Cincinnati, Ohio, the likelihood is you are five miles, the one in three chance that you're five miles or less from one of our clinics. And we eventually want that to be 100% so that everybody lives near uh, one of these. And the way we're doing that is finding partners who have geographic footprints and adding them to the matrix, adding them to the mix. Well, thanks for, the, for the, the overview of your program. Just as we, as we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to, to zoom back a little bit uh, and take a broader view of the health system. 
reflecting on your experience as a, as a thought leader, both within uh, uh, Congress and now as a, the leader of the HTA, what do you see the U.S. healthcare landscape looking like five or 10 years from now? Any major changes that you think will occur? Uh, what are some of the key challenges you think that will emerge? I think we're inevitably headed to a system that is Amazon and not Kmart. I don't literally mean Amazon. Maybe they'll participate, maybe they won't. Some of the things they do work, some don't. At Amazon, you decide when you're gonna shop. You don't have to wait for the store to open. At Amazon, you have a, essentially a limitless supply of the goods. You know, if the, if the store is out of blue sweaters, Amazon's not out of blue sweaters, except in very unusual circumstances. The price is something you're aware of before you buy the product, and it's very competitive. You, you probably feel like you're getting the better price from Amazon. And the convenience is if it, you're, you have a bit of insomnia and feel like shopping at 3.30 in the morning, you can shop at 3.30 in the morning. The Kmart isn't open. Not, not to coincidentally, Amazon is thriving and Kmart no longer is in business. I think that's what healthcare, at least for the normal person who doesn't have a severe acute situation or a severe chronic situation, that's what it's going to be like. And the reason I'm confident that's what it's going to be like is that there's a demographic tidal wave that's going to demand that. I have daughters who are 30 and 28. They have never written a check. I don't mean that they never paid their own bills, although there is some truth to that. But, but they've, they've all done electronic transfers. Uh, a majority of their doctor's appointments are already virtual when they are consumers. I don't think, except for if they want to be part of the experience, like the Barbie experience, they haven't been to a movie theater in a very long time. They watch Netflix. I don't think they've ever hailed a cab. They use Uber. And all of those products, I think, have the same definition. They operate at the demand of the consumer to the convenience of the consumer in a way the consumer feels the value is high. Healthcare is going to have to do that. So the question is how quickly and in what form, but that's where we're headed. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think in general, the healthcare market has lagged behind other sectors in terms of adopting technology, especially in interfacing with customers and that mass customization that you, you talk about when you talk about Amazon, but that does appear to be a market imperative. Rob, thanks so much again for taking the time to talk with me today. I know our listeners really, really will appreciate your perspective and will be very interested in hearing about the work that HD, HTA is doing in primary care and generally to improve the well, health system. Guy, you've got my number. Use it. I'd love to talk <laughs> to you. Looking, for, looking forward to the next time. Thanks, Rob. You got it. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you for supporting CPR's mission to improve the function of the healthcare marketplace. And don't forget to subscribe to Listening In on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at catalyze.org for more information about the benefits of CPR membership.